We'd like to thank the underwriter of today's episode, Certainteed Architectural, from economical acoustical panels and suspension systems to unique ceiling showpieces in metal, felt, fiberglass, and wood, Certainteed Architectural has the right solution for every space and every budget, all with the backing of design consultants, technical experts, and world-class customer support to help you unleash the creative potential of every project. Certainteed Architectural will manage the details so you can focus on pushing the boundaries of ceiling and wall design. There's a myth out there that people who are strong at design are weak at technical and people who are strong at technical are weak in design. And that myth is perpetrated by people who are <laughs> strong in one and weak in the other. And they feel like you could not be in both. And I'm here to tell you, you can absolutely be unbelievable in both. And, and likewise, and there is no reason for acoustics or any other reason. I mean, okay, occasionally there's a reason, right? But there is no reason why you have to make something ugly because of acoustics. And there's no reason that you can't make beautiful work that performs well and walk and chew gum at the same time. I'm Paul Makovsky, Editor-in-Chief at Architect Magazine. And I'm Madeline D'Angelo, Associate Editor at Architect. Welcome back to the second part of this two-part series on the architecture of sound. In this episode, we're going to explore how we use acoustics for different types of spaces. And we're also going to take a look at how sustainability and sound connect, and what the most common mistakes that interior designers and architects make when designing around sound. We're joined again by two experts. The first is Michael Ehrman, AIA, a professor at Virginia Tech School of Architecture and author of the award-winning book, Architectural Acoustics Illustrated. And we also are joined by Steve Udolph the National Sales Manager for Certainty Architectural, which covers a wide range of standard and custom product collections in felt, wood, metal, fiberglass, and more. Welcome back, Michael and Steve. I'll start with Stephen first. Can you talk about yourself, please? I am the sales manager for the specialty division of Certainty Architectural. So we basically have specialty metal, wood, and fiberglass, along with some felt offering. And I've been doing that for probably five years. Started my first 15 years of my career with Tecum, which is an acoustical material that is used in primarily in school gymnasiums, schools, theaters, things like that, that absorb sound and basically reduce the echo. And we have Michael Ehrman, who's a professor at Virginia Tech. He's also the author of Architectural Acoustics Illustrated, uh, an award-winning book. Michael, why don't you talk about yourself? I'm an architecture professor where I teach here at Virginia Tech. I'm in my 21st year. I teach design studio at every level, and I teach research in architectural acoustics. One of the big questions that I think architects and interior designers are thinking about when they design or they should be thinking about is sustainability and biophilia are important concepts. How should we be designing around that? Steven, are you seeing designers bringing sustainability and biophilia to the table? Well, sure, of course. And I think from our standpoint, that's really where we focus in on our wood products specifically. But in general, that's become a very, very popular product. And we're seeing all different types of variations of that from different types of, of beams and different types of grills and things like that to acoustical wood panels and, and products that simply can go on the mount on a wall. But yes, we're seeing it more and more. Again, not a concept that we saw even five years ago. I would say something new in architecture that we're all trying to adapt to a little bit. Michael, in our last episode, you sort of mentioned uh, acoustics in terms of bumping up in a way against sustainability 
how do you look at that? How do you have architects and designers address that? My answer would not make me very popular either in the acoustical consulting world or in the product manufacturing world. And I'm not a super picky person when it comes to language, but while acoustics is a huge part of environmental indoor, indoor environmental quality and its overlap with sustainability is frankly fairly mild. If we kind of look at sustainability as primarily an issue of climate change and we look at the impact of buildings on climate change, most of the smart people who research this think that the operations of a building are way more important than the construction. Maybe 95-5 is the ratio. So 95% of the carbon that's going to be produced in the life of a building is going to be produced by the operation of its lighting and its air conditioning system and so forth. And maybe 5 or maybe 10% is going to be on the construction side. So if we use sustainable materials and we knock 10% off the, the carbon footprint of our materials, maybe we've knocked off one-tenth of that 5 or 10%. So 0.5% or 1% of the total impact of the building. But if we work just as hard in design to make something that is more efficient in lighting and systems and, and daylight itself, then we're talking about maybe reducing it by 10%. It's a long way of saying that sustainability is really important and acoustics are really important. Even though one is probably, frankly, more important than the other right now, I don't know that we have to shoehorn one under the other to make them both worthwhile. I think that one of the ways that the idea of sustainability is evolving is that we have to start to think not just from a material point of view, but how does a space make people feel happier and healthier? And so acoustics plays such an important role in the interior field because I feel anxious in, in an interior space because I don't know, there's so much noise going around. If you're always hearing noise outside your house, are you feeling good and healthy inside? And are you getting a good night's rest? And it's even as basic as that. One of the things I fear is that we'll water down both acoustics and sustainability. If you're an architect and you want to make a great building, I don't see any reason why you can't have a building that's amazing in every way that is low energy and is beautiful and is durable and has really great acoustics. And sometimes there's a missed opportunity for the architects who are building buildings from the outside in to have maybe better conversations from the architects and interior architects and interior designers who are designing spaces from the inside out. I think at this point that, again, we've educated the architectural community so well that they're all building sustainable buildings, right? I think that the architects in general right now are doing a really good job of designing with sustainability in mind on every building that they build. Could we be better at it? Of course we could be better at it. But I also think that the general consensus out there from the architectural community is they're going to build the most sustainable building that they can possibly build at this point. Steve, to your point that you're seeing an increased focus on architects focusing on sustainable projects. Are you seeing that creating a different demand for the kind of sound control they're looking for? I think it depends on the space that's being designed and the building that's being designed. In general, the architectural community knows what spaces are going to really need art, need acoustics and what spaces where you can kind of not put as much acoustical material in or do the acoustical absorption differently. There's a lot of different products out there. They're not all acoustical but they're all design oriented. But depending on how you configure those products, you can make them acoustical, depending on if you, let, let's just say you have a metal ceiling. Well, you can put a metal ceiling into a space. It's not gonna be very acoustical, 
but you can put perforations and micro perforations and nano perforations into those metal ceilings. And now all of a sudden you have an acoustical ceiling that still looks relatively the same. So I think that we've done a really good job on the manufacturer side. We've done a good job of providing the correct information on what products are going to give you good absorption, what products you're going to need to, to design around the products for more absorption if you still want those products in your space. But in general, I think all the manufacturers in our industry have done a really good job of providing that information to the architect. Let's look at the different sectors commercial architects and interior designers are designing for. Right now, we're seeing that healthcare is a booming business. What are the issues that we should be thinking about when we design healthcare spaces? I think you've got two different types of space in healthcare, right? There's some spaces that you want very private because you're having very private health conversations. That's where you're going to want to stop sound and you're going to want to make that space so that the sound is not going to penetrate into another space. Then you've got big lobbies and you've got cafeterias and you've got spaces that are, have big openness to them, open plenum type spaces where you're going to need some type of acoustical absorption in those spaces to knock down the echo. Again, not, you don't have to stop the sound. The privacy is not an issue in those spaces, but the audibility of the space is. So I think you've got two different types of sounds that you have to deal with in those spaces. Michael, do you have anything to add to that? In the 70s and 80s, there was a lot of the acoustic research in architectural acoustics was being funded by government. So the state of California, for instance, would fund a lot or U.S. corporations like U.S. Gypsum. And that all kind of dried up with the exception of the Canadian government and some big construction companies in Asia. Really, there was not support for architectural acoustics research, you know, pretty much through the 90s and the 2000s. And where it's coming back is in healthcare. So we're starting to see in all kinds of indoor performance, including lighting and daylighting. And, but we're starting to see it in healthcare in part because the results are pretty remarkable. I mean, you know, they did a daylighting study and I think the best daylight rooms were using 20 some percent less pain medication and the people were getting let out earlier too. We're coming to an understanding that number one, the indoor environmental quality and the kind of experience of the occupant in healthcare settings really matters and makes a big impact. And I think, frankly, number two is there's probably a lot of money at stake. I just talked to an architect yesterday for a really big firm and I said, how are you doing? And he said, I'm busy. I'm about to be put on as project manager for a 1 million square foot, $2.2 billion hospital <laughs> in Canada. And I just can't even get my head around those numbers. So if you can make something meaningfully better and it's that expensive, then there seems to be an, an understanding that maybe we ought to look into it a little bit more. Most of the research that I've seen in healthcare settings is based on noise control. And the biggest issue they're finding, well, there's a couple of issues, but one is sleep. So there's beeping machines, which doesn't seem like an architectural issue, but it has a really outsized impact on the architectural experience of the occupants of the of hospitals, for instance. So if you have beeping machines beeping all night long, your quality of sleep goes down quite a bit. And then speech privacy in the nursing stations, because they have to be able to get away and talk to each other and not bother the people sleeping, but also not be heard. And then all the HIPAA rules for speech privacy in terms of you not being able to hear about my crazy, weird, contagious skin infection or something like that. So those are generally the areas from the academy. You know, I, I can't speak as, as much from industry, but from the academy, those are the areas that seem most fertile. Steve, are you seeing interesting stuff happening there? 
First of all, you're seeing a boom in healthcare building right now. We're, we're seeing new facilities all over the place, obviously, with, with everything that's been going on. But from a design standpoint, we're still seeing the same materials being used that were being used before. Now we're getting smarter with how we use those materials. But I've not seen a major change in product or material that we use in healthcare. For example, another big factor in healthcare is cleanability of materials. And I think there was a time when we all said we had cleanable materials, but they weren't really all cleanable materials. Now I think that testing has become better. And so you're seeing what material can we put in a space that's cleanable, that's acoustical, or will be able to help with the sound privacy. Plus, I also think that you have companies out there that focus on healthcare and things like clean rooms and operating rooms and, and things like that specifically, whereas we didn't have that focus before. So now at this point, you've got specific manufacturers out there making very specific products for those spaces. Then you have manufacturers like us that we manufacture for any space, but you can use our products in some of those spaces. That's super interesting because generally the materials that you might think are sound absorptive are things that are fuzzy, like fabric wrap, fiberglass or felt or your seat cushions or your big puffy coat that you're wearing or porous things, fluffy light things that are kind of fuzzy that seem like they would absorb, generally do absorb. And things that you think would reflect things that are hard and massive and smooth, like smooth concrete or marble or terrazzo or gypsum board to some extent, they generally reflect with maybe two exceptions. Carpet is nowhere near as absorptive as many architects think it is. And unpainted concrete block is not quite as reflective as most people would assume it is. And very thin fabrics really are not absorptive like people think they are. What Steve's talking about is really interesting because when you're talking about healthcare environments and you have to wipe surfaces down for germs, it doesn't stretch the imagination too much to think about the difficulty and the kind of inherent conflicts when you have fuzzy materials with porous surfaces and you have microbes <laughs> in the same space and you have open wounds in the same space, you can imagine that these become very difficult very quickly. Well, also with COVID, there's been a lot of research done by some big architectural firms on antimicrobial paints and things like that, that was always used. Everyone always had an antimicrobial paint that they could put on their products. And now some research is coming back and saying, well, that, that antimicrobial paint doesn't exactly work the way they think it works. And so that's become a very big deal to the point where not just in healthcare, but I think in even office space, you're seeing the reduction of some of those fuzzy surfaces that traditionally did absorb sound well. So because of that, you now have to figure out how to get your acoustics with more hard surfaces in a space. Steve, talk to me a little bit more about those office spaces, because I know at Architect, they're at the top of our minds right now because everyone's maybe returning to an office. And if they are, it's a radically different office than the one that they might have left back in 2020. I saw a statistic like at some point, 70% of the workforce will be back into their offices. And I think there was a time a year ago where we as manufacturers at least all thought, are they going to start eliminating some of these big spaces that they're building with offices? Now they're designing them differently. And what you're seeing is you're seeing more space. Let's talk, talk about a cubicles. Instead of having a cubicle farm in the middle of a big open space, you're seeing higher walls. You're seeing more space between these particular cubicles. But you're also seeing a lot more individual rooms, whereas maybe you had a big call center where it was a bunch of open cubicles. You're having more spaces that you can go in and shut a door. 
Now, does that mean more offices, individual unique offices? No, that's not what we're seeing. We're seeing more community office type space where somebody can go into a space, shut a door, have a private conversation, go back out to their cubicle. We're also seeing a different design of meeting rooms where you have a, a bigger meeting room with more ability to space people out. But in general, I think what you're going to see is a lot of that office space still being designed. Because I, I do think at some point that you're going to see a lot more people back at the office than we originally anticipated. And so how do these different designs translate into different demands on acoustics? So, for example, again, I'll go back to the cubicle. Oftentimes they had fabric on both sides and that fabric helped absorb a lot of the sound. That we're seeing change to more hard spaces. So what you're doing is you're having to bring your acoustics up top into either the ceiling into cloud apparatuses and things like that. And then how do you make it design oriented? Because that's very important, the look of your office space, right? We've all been comfortable in our home and our home is the way we want it. It looks the way we want it. it it's the way we designed it. We're now seeing where we have to take some of that and put it back into the offices to get people back to the offices. You're seeing a different type of approach to acoustics Yes, acoustics was always in the ceiling, but they always counted, especially in these big spaces on some of the other things cutting down that sound. You're seeing that change. Now, I also think you're seeing higher cubicle walls. And so that is helping to keep some of the sound concentrated back into the cubicles. You're not seeing quite the flutter echo that you were seeing in some of these spaces before. But again, now you're seeing a lot more acoustical clouds and a lot more hanging apparatuses rather than being designed and built right into the cubicles themselves. I got an email last night from a university official who reached out to me to see if I was interested in doing a study looking at open plan offices just with everyone shouting on Zoom at the same time and kind of how to keep the sound from one area out to the other. And right before our meeting this morning, I wrote back to him and I said, I'm sorry, I can't do this because I know what's going to happen. There's no way to stop the sound. This is a myth that seems to persist that somehow we can do something to create speech privacy in an open plan office. And in reality, everyone's own experience tells you that doesn't make any sense. Go have an argument with your kid and then leave the door partly open and see if in you know the next room someone can hear you. If there's shared air, there's shared sound. What I'm getting at is that I am 100% with Steve when he talks about people returning. And we'll see if I'm right, but I think people are coming back to offices. This conversation also makes me think about a different kind of space. I'm wondering what the acoustical issues we're seeing in the world of schools looks like. As an educator and as an acoustician, I'm double interested in this. And actually, a lot of the research I've done has been on schools. And one of the things we did is we, we looked at, you know, all these, these kids have to take all these standardized tests, but it gives us all this data. And so what we did is we were looking for a warm weather city that we could get the data for the elementary schools as to what type of mechanical system they have. Because we know if we kind of loosely put mechanical systems, cooling systems into three different buckets, one bucket, you have a remote cooling system where you have a remote compressor and a remote fan and you have air ducted into your room. That's generally much quieter than if you have, for instance, a remote chiller where so the compressor is remote, but a fan in the room. And that's quieter than if we have a compressor and a fan in the room. So if we have a through the wall unit, kind of almost essentially a window unit in the room, that's louder still. And so we thought, I wonder if there happens to be any link between the student test scores and the type of mechanical system that's in the school. 
And what we found was overwhelming, 99% statistical certainty. It is a huge impact, especially the loudest kind. So the loudest kind of room where you have a, basically a through the wall unit, which fortunately we're not doing as much anymore. Those type of rooms, there is a significant hit that the students are taking on the test. Now, there are some questions like, why would it be only for that type? Well, what we think is that if you can picture the teacher speaking at a given volume, and the air conditioning system at another given volume, as long as the teacher is enough louder than the air conditioning system, the students can hear the teacher. But at some point it's like binary, like once the background noise gets above the, the signal noise, then the syllables start to disappear for kids and especially young kids. Because young kids, it turns out, are not as good as we are at filling in the gaps. So if I say the phrase filling in the gaps, you as adults know that, know that even if you don't hear all those syllables, you can figure out what I'm saying. But kids don't have that kind of experience. So if you say fill in the gaps and they miss some of those syllables, they might not know what you're saying. So we found that generally the teachers are speaking at a level that is louder than the kind with the fan in the room and the remote compressor, but quieter than the level with the compressor and the fan in the room. Of course, we had to account for socioeconomic status. And we, in, in education research, we do that by looking at the percentage of students in a school that, that are eligible for free or reduced lunch. And that was a much bigger, obviously, as you might imagine, a much bigger issue. Now, this won't surprise anyone living in America. The, the poorer schools also had the noisier mechanical systems. So that compounded that as well. But even at any given socioeconomic level of a school, there was a significant hit on reading and math test scores in Orlando for the schools that had the noisiest types of mechanical systems. We'd like to thank the underwriter of today's episode, Certainty at Architectural. From economical acoustical panels and suspension systems to unique ceiling showpieces and metal, felt, fiberglass, and wood, Certainty at Architectural has the right solution for every space and every budget, all with the backing of design consultants, technical experts, and world-class customer support to help you unleash the creative potential of every project. Certainty at Architectural will manage the details so you can focus on pushing the boundaries of ceiling and wall design. Now, back to the show. And so, Steve, what are you kind of seeing in the education space? I'm not sure I have a whole lot more to add than that. From a classroom standpoint, we have not dealt with a lot of new school construction in the last year. What I would tell you is I have six-year-old twins, and their classroom is the exact same as it was before. There's <laughs> no change at all. So whether that's true across the country or not, I don't know. We're seeing some schools, but we're certainly not seeing the school construction that we were seeing even three years ago. And I think that's probably right now on the cusp of coming back is my guess, as we're all starting to go back to school and back to the offices. So two days ago, I took my students on a tour of the performing arts space here on campus, and we went down into the orchestra pit. And so in the orchestra pit, there's a retractable velour curtain. So the idea is, in general, orchestra pits are used for musicals and for opera, and they're used to tuck away the instruments so you can see the performers, you can see the vocalists, and they're sunken down below. And a big challenge with musicals and operas is the balance of the musicians and the singers. As you might imagine, a half a dozen musicians playing over almost always overwhelm one one vocalist and so the conductors are always telling the musicians quieter you have to get quieter but they're musicians they like to hear their own instruments right so they're always playing louder so what you would think would happen and it often does is you would deploy the sound absorbing curtains to add absorption to the pit so that the audience doesn't hear an overwhelming reflections from the orchestra pit that might drown out the vocalist but what actually a lot of conductors have found 
is that they retract the curtains to make it more reverberant in the pit. And why do they do that, do you think? Well, they do that so that the performers can hear just how loud they are. So they actually want to make it louder in the pit so that the performers will play quieter and believe them when they say you're drowning out the vocalist. So these kind of things, these kind of human nature things are a huge part of acoustics. They may be a little bit beyond the purview of architectural acoustics or even architecture, but these kind of things are fascinating how these counterintuitive examples might factor in. You truly are, and you're touching on another typology that I wanted to ask you about, which is the theater performance-based public hall kind of situation. So could you talk a little bit more about that, Michael? As you might imagine, when you're talking about performance spaces, especially spaces for unamplified performance, almost all the things I said before about architects can do this, you guys are good. That's probably one of the few areas where it gets pretty in the weeds pretty quickly. The difference between something that's very good and something that's excellent just requires a lot of extra work and very technical work. But for theaters, very much like per our previous discussion, it's very much about right-sizing the reverberance. So putting a room volume. So big rooms sound like big rooms. So we've talked a lot about materials, but the reverberance of a room, the reverberation time of a room, how racquetball court-like a room sounds versus how recording studio-like a room sounds is also very much about the size of the room. So if you have a large room, then your mean-free path between reflections is much longer and so the sound will take longer to decay. And so we kind of intuit that. We know that big rooms sound like big rooms and small rooms sound like small rooms. And frankly, we probably just adjust to it in our head somewhat. That's why sometimes when you hear a recording that's made in a big room, you think, wow, I didn't realize it was that reverberant in there. It kind of sounds almost like they're speaking in some kind of a giant hall when I know they weren't. So once we figure out the right size for the room, and then we need to figure out the right quantity of sound absorbing material, to get the reverberation time correct. And then as much as reasonable, we wanna direct early reflections back to the audience. And we wanna limit late strong reflections that might be heard as an echo. So this becomes, again, just an exercise that architects are just born for. Something where we're kind of thinking about the geometry of a space. We're talking about where the reflections are gonna come. We're talking about where the reflections are gonna go and how the interaction between a source on a platform or a stage is gonna be heard in the house. So, Steve, what are you seeing in these kinds of spaces? I'm not sure I can add a whole lot more to that other than I think it depends on, first of all, what's going to be performed in that particular space. Obviously, musicals, performances of that nature are going to need different types of absorption than, let's say, a concert hall or something that's going to be doing just vocal, so plays and things like that. So I think that does make a difference. But again, a theater has a big open space. And so there's going to be echo and echo is going to be produced, sound is produced at one very specific end and is going to then project out into one, the audience, and then two, to all the hard surfaces that are all around the space. So really what you need and, and what we see is you just need good absorptive material in that space. But again, it depends on what specific functions are going to be going on in that space. I don't think, though, that we ever see a theater without any type of absorptive material. There's always some type of absorbers or reflectors in the theaters. We were talking about cafeterias and loud noises, and that is a good transition to the idea of restaurants and bars and, and hotels. In the hospitality sector, especially in New York City, certain restaurant owners want a space to be really, really loud so that people will spend less time there and they're sort of moving customers through the space. 
how do you balance that idea of acoustics in and the kind of experience of a restaurant or a bar? Again, it depends on the goal of the restaurant or the bar. Oftentimes, those are louder spaces, and oftentimes, owners want them that way. They want them to be louder. When you look, though, at absorbent material in restaurants and bars, you're almost always looking at somehow doing it in the ceiling, be it very simple with just black lay-in grid and tile that has some type of absorbative material to open areas with, with hanging apparatuses that absorb sound, but it's almost always what we see in the ceiling. Higher-end bars and higher-end restaurants will use different decorative materials. So for example, we put beams in a restaurant all the time. They're acoustical beams though, right? So they absorb sound, but they also add a really nice visual element to the space. Back when I was with Tectum, we do Tectum above the bar a lot because it's abuse resistant. So it can take any type of abuse that it may get, but it also absorbs sound, but it kind of tends to blend into a space. And, and that's what they wanted in those particular spaces. So it depends on what you're looking at. And, and, and it depends on if it's a high end or, or not. I've seen, for example, Topgolf has a whole bar area and they'll put absorbent sound right over top of the bar area so that they can absorb what people sitting around the bar has a little bit better audibility than, let's say, the people that are actually trying to play the games because they don't care about the, the sound at that point. The human brain is really incredible. We don't yet have, to my knowledge, computers that can do this, but the fact that we can be in a cocktail party where there's dozens of conversations going on and pick out one conversation and be able to follow it is remarkable. And it turns out that as we get older, we lose the ability to do that. So the people who complain about noise in restaurants have one thing in common, in my experience, and that is they are over a certain age. And because it's called the cocktail party effect. That's why sometimes when you bring great grandma to her 90th birthday party, she just kind of sits there in the restaurant and you think that's weird. She's so lucid, but why is she just sitting there? It's because she can't follow all the conversations that are going on at the table. And so one of the things that I get asked a lot when people know what I do by people of a certain age is about, well, why can't they fix restaurants? And I never know what to say, because the truth is, sometimes they don't want those people in their restaurants. They, they want their restaurants to be the domain of young people. And if you're under the age of 50, when's the last time you were in a Red Lobster? Because certain restaurants have a reputation of being associated with people of a certain age and certainly certain times of night for eating dinner and so forth. So insofar as many restaurants that are loud want to be loud, it may be because they want crowd. And this goes back to our previous conversation about once you layered kind of the quirks of human nature on top of acoustics, it becomes so much more interesting as you go forward. The idea of a grid ceiling, it's obviously ubiquitous. I'm looking at one right now, but I would put the question back to you, Paul. I'm a longtime subscriber of Architect Magazine. I don't remember ever seeing a grid ceiling in any of the photographs that you guys have. So I I would encourage your listeners to think about ways to provide absorption, of course, in the grid ceiling, that's always going to be a big part of our life, but also beyond that, how can we make spaces that are beautiful and sound absorbent at the same time? And I'm here to tell you, it's very possible. There are lots of products, including some by certainty that allow you to go beyond the ceiling. And there's also no specific reason that absorption has to happen in the ceiling typically. In fact, probably in order of importance, the back wall is the most important if you have a fixed source. Second most important is the back portion of the ceiling. And third most important nominally is the upper portions of the back walls in terms of where to put absorption. Again, it goes back to that 
sending and receiving end. But the ceiling itself in, say, a classroom, for all the reasons we talked about, about the importance of early reflections and kind of when I take my hands and I cup them over my mouth and, and redirect sound, if, for instance, where the teacher is, having uh, sound reflective surfaces above the teacher that can then be reflected back to the students is quite beneficial. And so I would encourage people to think beyond the ceiling because I have heard so many times, well, you know, I don't want to put a grid ceiling in, but we have to because of acoustics and you don't. I'm getting to that age and I see it when you're younger and you're in these bars and you're, you're okay with the loud sound and yelling and to have a conversation. The older you get, you just want to go to a restaurant and sit across from somebody and be able to talk to them and not have to be screaming at them. I think that needs to be taken into account as we design these spaces. One of the things that I'm seeing that's becoming increasingly popular in public office, even residential buildings, is this idea of the open plenum design. So we're seeing the need for seamless wall to ceiling transitions that complement its use and as well as address the challenges it presents. So how do we deal with something like that? Because that in a way is now a kind of trend that we're seeing more and more. We deal with open plenum design a lot. And what we see is there's a lot of different designs that we see. We see uh, acoustical clouds a lot, different shapes, a lot of different types of acoustical beams. We even see it's becoming very popular now is your stretch metal. Yes, you have a ceiling in there, but it's a very open ceiling where you're putting some type of spray on acoustics on the deck. And then you're putting a very open ceiling in there as a design element. So we're seeing a lot of different designs when it comes to open plenum. As a studio design professor, I'm on a mission to bring back the reflected ceiling plan as a generator of architectural intent. I think that's the most underrated. I, I don't know why everyone just pushes that off to the least experienced intern, because it seems to me that when I'm in a space, the overhead plane is probably the most important and the most interesting from an interior point of view. From an acoustic point of view, there's no reason you can't do an open plenum. Again, it's going to vary from place to place, but for many of the applications we've been talking about for classrooms, for lobbies of a hotel, for open plan offices, if you have an area of acoustic absorption approximately equal to the floor area, it really does not have to be on the ceiling. And it certainly doesn't have to be on the middle of the ceiling. So there's no reason we can't push that around to the upper portions of the walls. There are maybe certain soffits on the ceilings or, or like Steve was talking about clouds. Everyone has my permission to go ahead and push the sound absorption around the room pretty much wherever they want. Generally, if you put it low on the wall, unless you have something really durable, like the tectum that Steve was talking about before, people with rolling carts and kids wrestling and that kind of thing, when they come into contact with those porous materials that I was talking about, they tend to kind of rip things off of walls and make things crumble. <laughs> so generally, you want it out of reach of people, but there's no reason it necessarily has to be on the ceiling. And it certainly doesn't have to be on all the ceiling. What are the most common mistakes that architects and interior designers make when thinking about designing spaces with sound in mind? Some of them I've touched on. The most important time to think about sound is at the beginning. And probably the easiest and cheapest and most effective thing you can do is to start to think about where the noisy space is, is space plan with noise in mind. So identify where the noisy space, you know, you think about circulation when you're, you know, when you're locating two different rooms, you think about daylighting, you think about accessibility, you, you have all these kind of thoughts going through your mind. And I would just invite you to bring one more thought if you're not already doing it, which is identify the space as one that either is noise sensitive or not, 
and is noise generating or not. And just make sure you don't put any noise generating spaces adjacent to any noise sensitive spaces. I would say that's the first in terms of what should be avoided. And that will eliminate a lot of your problems. In terms of common mistakes, I think there's probably six things that are most common. And I made up that number. I don't know how many I'm going to come up with, but I have them in my head. It's approximately six. The first most common mistake is to think of acoustics as one big mush. And so I would encourage people to get in their minds, whether you're talking about room acoustics, whether you're talking about mechanical noise control, whether you're talking about sound isolation. The second common mistake is people think it's about the wall from a noise isolation point of view, but it's actually much more about the window or the door. So the weakest link governs the noise isolation between say two rooms or Madeline was before talking about noise coming through her window. And she's right, it's coming through her window, not through her wall. And so people will focus on the assembly of the wall and they will think, well, the window doesn't cover much of the wall, but that's like saying the hole in the roof doesn't cover much of the roof. So I'm not that worried about a leak. It's much more like keeping water out. The third thing to kind of keep in mind, actually, I'm going to stop at those two. I think those two are enough more important than the next (laughs) that I'll stop at those two, but I would love to come back. We can do a whole podcast about common mistakes. We'll call it the 11 most common mistakes that architects make. We'll enumerate them in another podcast. Hey, Stephen, what are you seeing on, on the ground? Because you're dealing with people every day in terms of translating ideas into real concepts. A couple things. So one of the things is the design community is becoming very creative with how they use their materials. What'll happen is we'll have a specific product and they'll say, well, we really like that product, but we'd like it this way, or we'd like it this way. And so I think from that standpoint, we're seeing a kind of an evolution of our own products and it starts in the design community. And I think that's something that all material manufacturers need to do to open their ears to is the best R&D team that I have is the architectural community. They will bring us new products all the time. And from that standpoint, then we just have to listen and we just have to, to get our smart people that like to sit there and play with materials and invent things to come up with different materials that are obviously are absorptive, but also have a really good design appeal. So I think the design community has helped us Im- immensely. I also think there are specific design communities out there that will help you do that. There are architecture firms that have their own R&D departments that will help you with their actually inventing different, different materials. And most of it is always taking some material that you have and changing it, whether it be the appearance or the, uh, the acoustics or whatever that may be, the finish, whatever it may be, changing it just a little bit. And all of a sudden you've got yourself a nice new product out there that can be used in a space. And that's how a lot of our products have come from is the design community saying, this is how I want to use a product. Can you do this for us? Last thoughts. What is one word of advice you would give an architect or an interior designer who's starting out and needs to think about acoustics and design of their space? There's a myth out there that people who are strong at design are weak at technical and people who are strong at technical are weak in design. And that myth is perpetrated by people who are (laughs) strong in one and weak in the other. And they feel like you could not be in both. And I'm here to tell you, you can absolutely be unbelievable in both. And, And likewise, there is no reason for acoustics or any other reason. I mean, okay, occasionally there's a reason, right? But there is no reason why you have to make something ugly because of acoustics. And there's no reason that you can't make beautiful work that performs well and walk and chew gum at the same time. 
my advice would be to use your resources. All the manufacturers in this industry on the interior finishes side have a lot of good information out there. And that information can help you very specifically focus in on your designs. And so I would say use your resources, be it a local sales rep to a website, to calling the actual manufacturer themselves and, and walking through a product. There's a lot of different resources out there that can help you so that you're not doing it all on your own. Thank you, Michael and Steve. I think we've had a great conversation here. You really added a lot of food for thought. Thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Paul. And that's all we have for today. Thank you for listening. Visit architectmagazine.com to see more of our coverage and to hear more from the Architect Podcast Network.